Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. This is Alan Schaefer. Welcome to our third study in the Gospel of John. This week we're going to be looking at two accounts from the Gospel of John. The first is the account of the woman at the well of Samaria, one of Christ's many divine appointments. The second is his healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. This shows his continuing and escalating conflict with the Pharisees. So join me now as we begin our study today. Okay, so let's go ahead and uh, open in prayer. Father, thanks for tonight and for this opportunity to be here. Thank you for your word that's set before us. I pray that its pages would open to our hearts. We might understand it. We thank you for your Holy Spirit to guide us in the understanding, and we ask you to teach us now. May we be open and receptive, and we just thank you for this time and pray that you would just guide our discussions to come. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Um, Any questions on John chapter 2 and 3? I can't believe we actually got through that last week, but any questions on it to this point? Anybody learn anything they didn't know before? That's a loaded question, I realize, but anything really neat? What was it? I learned a lot, really. A lot of, you know, just interpreting the scripture, you know, bring it out. Like, especially like the first, John, the first chapter, I was just looking at it. And just kind of bringing out, you know, the Calvinists, mm-hmm. they believe like, mm-hmm. everybody's predestined. Mm-hmm. Well, I understand that, but it's a lot of you know. You can go back and forth all day with it, but like scriptures, like um, verse thirteen, where it says, "Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God." Just bringing it out more of understanding. Sometimes you read the stuff and you just over you, you fly you over really, it. Yeah, you never really get you know all of what the scripture saying. Well, if you're still an Arminian, when you come next week, when we finish chapter six, you'll be forever a Calvinist. All right, that will cure you. If you really understand <laughs> chapter six, you're, you know. And then why? And then another one. The one like when why Jesus why Jesus said to his mother like, woman, what is you know yeah. that. The way that you know you brought that out, like, because I always wondered, like, why did he address it in that type of way? But that book right there, and John MacArthur's commentary, they kind of, they don't, he, he, he give another interpretation. Mm-hmm. But this one here, he, he agrees with you, John MacArthur. I'm glad he agrees with me, because <laughs> I agree with him. <laughs> I thought that was interesting, yeah. his response to his mom. Yeah. Because I never thought about that until I heard it last. When you think about it, it does make sense because uh, he's changing. Well, he's not changing, but he's moving to a different stage of his life. And she, as his mother, earthly mother, had to let go. And and you got to understand culturally, it's it's a little bit different now than it was then. But culturally, back then, as the oldest son, he was responsible for his mother. Yes. That's how the culture would have viewed him. Um, and he had to make that break because of his ministry. He had to make that break, which really ran against 
the culture to some extent, you know. And it wasn't that he disrespected his mother. He never disrespected her a day in his life, you know. But as a human being, she had to let go. She had to allow him to do the ministry. And I think she knew that, you know. When he said that, she said, oh, yeah, that's right. I need to let him do what God's called him to do. But, you know, those are the kind... One of the things you'll find as we go through this that, that you, you, you get better at as you study the scripture and as you interpret, you'll get better at really questioning everything. Questioning it. Why do you say that? You know, what's going on there? How would she have interpreted that? How would she have felt? And you start digging into that. That's when a lot of this, you know, stuff that Gary's bringing out, that's when a lot of this like, oh, wow, I, I, okay, I understand. I see what's going on. It makes sense. You got to go beyond the twenty thousand foot level, because a lot of people just fly over the scriptures at twenty thousand feet. You know, they don't they don't see the richness of it. You know. Another thing that you with um, what you have said, that, you know, that made me look more to start thinking is how you like put yourself in that time. You know, yeah. Instead of just reading it and trying to, you know. Interpreted, you know, for today's. That that is that is probably the number one most difficult thing for a Bible student to do. It is tough because you know this these these this is two thousand years back. The culture is different. The you know the way they viewed life is different. Their cult customs are different. Um, it's in a different land. It's using different language. You got you got to really struggle and and fight your tendencies to try and read your modern understanding into the text. You really got to struggle against that because that's where a lot of the screwball theology comes from that you get nowadays. Is you know people go back. I I I get it willies when people talk about you know well Abraham was saved by looking forward to Christ. Number one, Abraham was not saved in the sense that we are saved. Number two, he didn't know who Christ was. I mean, he had a vague idea of a coming something, but that it was Jesus Christ and he was going to die on the cross. And I, I remember one guy saying, yeah, Abraham looked forward to Christ's death on the cross to forgive us. He didn't know about it. He didn't know that. <laughs> All Abraham knew is one day a voice told him to go to another land and he went. I mean, Abraham knew less about God than your, like, you know, I think last week I said, you know, your, your kindergarten Sunday school kid knows more about God than Abraham ever did. So you got to go back and put yourself into that because that's when the scriptures then open up and when you really understand them and, and understand what, what was being said. And, and especially when you go back with, in the Gospels, you got to go back into that culture and understand Christ, Christ is not speaking to a vacuum. He's speaking to a context that's happening. And, that, and that's what we're going to find today as we work through four. That's, that's where it's really going to come out. There is a context behind it. And if you don't understand the context, you're going to get the interpretation wrong. And you're really not going to understand the scripture. You know, you're going to, you're going to make some wild interpretations, but you're really not going to understand what it really means. And that's hard to do. And that's why it takes a lot of work to, and that's why I like MacArthur so well, because he does a really good job of trying to get you back into that thinking. You know, how would they have interpreted it? You know. Sometimes you hear people warp the context. Right. They're uh, they're saying, oh, Paul wasn't saying 
homosexuality wasn't a sin. You go, you, you, you've been hanging around Oberlin College too long. I mean, it's under the yeah. nuttiest thing. Right. As they try and justify right. the sin. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, what, what you need to do is when you're, when, the best way to interpret scripture, really the secret, is to try and understand it in terms of its context. Get that down first. Once you understand that, then you can bring in, you test your interpretation by bringing in other passages. Okay? Don't, don't bring in other passages to help you interpret it at the get-go. Try to understand it for what it says and then bring other passages in to, to validate that, you know, and that, that saves you from that kind of thing, you know, where they say, well, you know, Paul, you know, he wasn't really speaking against homosexuals. Well, if you interpret it the way it's written, it does speak against that. But then if you look at the greater context, it also supports that, you know. Um, but yeah, that's a whole study in and of itself, just how to interpret the Bible. But getting that context accurate. Right. It's key. It's key. And that's why as a student of the Bible, you need to become a student of history and a student of culture. And that's why, you know, if you go off to seminary to become a, a doctor, you need to get, you know, learn Hebrew and Greek. You know, why do you do that? Well, you know, they don't have anything for you to do at seminary. They got to come up with stuff for you to learn. No, it's because understanding the language opens the scriptures to some of the scriptures to you in ways you would never get reading an English text. You know, it just it just lends a depth and a vibrancy to it. All right. It's like seeing a black and white photo and then all of a sudden seeing a color photo. It, there's you see the same thing, but the color is just more vibrant. It just gives you a clearer understanding of the of the scripture. And we're going to see that as we go through John four here. When you think of the message, is it helpful? Is um, it a waste of time? The paraphrase. Somebody asked, you know, my, my nephew just sent me an email on that the other day and asked me that. Um, the message being that Eugene Peterson thing. Understand it for what it is. It is not. It is not a translation. It's not a translation. It is a paraphrase, and that's Eugene's understanding what Scripture says. All right, which is a good understanding. But as a student of Scripture, you don't go and let somebody else do your interpretation for you. You want to do it yourself. So that's why you need a, a very literal. Bible, like like a NASB, um, a New King James, the ERV is good. Um, better yet, go to Greek and Hebrew. You know, if you really want to get into it. And, and you, by the way, you don't know you don't need to know Greek and Hebrew to get interlinear Bibles. You know, and take advantage of some of the tools that they. You don't even need to read Hebrew to really take advantage of some of the stuff. Um, because you want to do the interpretation. You you want to do it. And whenever you go to like a paraphrase, like a, like the message, Eugene Peterson is interpreting the scripture, and then he's rephrasing it in language that that is understandable and clear. But he's done some interpretation in doing that. All right, and you need to just keep that in your mind when you do it. You just need to, you know. You know, I would say if you want to. Understand the scripture and be doctrinally sound. You need to see it in the close original text. Yeah, it's close original text, and and there are, there are certain you know the King James and the New King James are both good in that respect. Um, the NASB is a very literal trans. It's it's a tough read, but it's probably even more literal than the King James is. It's it's a little little bit closer. 
Um, the NIV is, is, is dynamic equivalent. So what they've done there is they've interpreted the meaning, not necessarily the words. So you got to keep that in mind. That's why I would not use the NIV personally, um, you know, for that. Otherwise, and there's also some churches that have NIV detectors when you walk in the door and they, they alarms go off. I gave Chuck Kesey a hard time on that. Well, he said, he said, you know, yeah, we got a king, we got an NIV detector in our church. If you come in with an NIV, you know, the alarms will go off and the deacons will, Call you out of church. <laughs> I used to laugh at him, but um, but you you, you want to st- as a student, you want to stay away from those. Now, are they good for devotional reading? Well, sure. Um, are they good to maybe give to some new Christians? Yeah, but they're not where you want them to wind up. Okay, they're they're not where you want to wind up. And you guys are at the level here. You all are at the level where you need a good, solid, somewhat literal translation to work with in your studies. And that's why you'd want to get something like that. If you want to use the message for devotional reading or something, there's no problem with that. That's not your, that should not be your main version that you use. Or you'll be in trouble. Although Eugene Peterson, he's not a heretic. Just understand, he's interpreted it for you. He's made interpretations. Anyways, we better get into our study tonight. We'll never will get through here. Um, John chapter 4. Um, this comes right after three. We see Jesus baptize him. Now, he's not personally baptizing. His disciples are. And what is the message at this point that Christ is preaching? Now, you're going to have to go to the other Gospels to discern this. But what is he preaching? What is the message being preached by Christ and John? Okay, and what does that mean, kingdom of heaven is at hand? What does that mean? Okay, and what is the offer to Israel? And what kingdom is it? It is the, not the eternal kingdom, but the millennial kingdom. The promised kingdom, right? Yeah. The promised kingdom. You know, it goes back to what Gary said, being an Israelite, put yourself in their shoes. When Christ says, repent for the kingdom is at hand, the first thing they're going to understand is the kingdom that God has promised them. And by the way, that was a bona fide, valid offer of the kingdom. Now, what did God know? And what did God ordain? Right, both of them. Both of those go together. Don't try to sort it out. Just go with it. All right? The church is not plan B. God didn't say, oh, nuts, they rejected me. Now what do I do? No, it was, it was part of the plan all the way along. All right? But the point is, it was a valid offer. And that's what Christ was offering. The, the idea of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ at this point was not in the gospel being preached. Because what is gospel? By, what, what does gospel mean? Good news. So you got to say, okay, it's good news about what? The gospel always, it's a contextual word. you got to ask, gospel about what? Well, the gospel of the kingdom is different than the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul preached, which is different than the everlasting gospel, which the angel preaches. All right, it's just good news. The good news that Christ and John initially spoke was, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we understand it, as Christ died for your sins, buried, rose again, salvation. The everlasting gospel is, you better get ready because God's kingdom is on its way. And that's being preached in the, in the tribulation by the angels flying through the heavens. And so Christ is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So he and John are preaching the same message. 
And as a bonus question, why was Christ baptized by John? And what was the significance of it? What does that mean? He's identifying with the message John was preaching. Right. He's identifying himself in it, with the message that John is preaching. Christ is not being baptized for the repentance of sins because he had no sins to repent of. He was not being baptized to show his repentance. He was being baptized to identify himself with the message that John is preaching, which is the gospel of the kingdom, and to link Christ's message with John's message. John and Christ didn't have different messages. They weren't preaching two different things. They were preaching the same thing. Now, after the Jews rejected the gospel of the kingdom, then you see the economy of God shifting towards the interregnum kingdom. It's called the interregnum. That's a fancy word, which means the, in, the, um, the reign in the middle of things. Okay? And what happens is that's the church. That was always the plan of God. But by the way, you don't see the church in the Old Testament. That's bad, that's bad interpretation. And that's our problem with our covenant guys. You know, like R.C. Sproul and, and, and people like that, their covenant theology. They say, well, the church is in the Old Testament. No, it's not. What did Paul call it in Ephesians 3? It's a... No. It was a Sherlock Holmes, Earl Stanley Gardner, Agatha Christie. It's a mystery. And what is a mystery? A mystery is not something you've got to figure out. A mystery was something that is hidden, now it is revealed. And the Old Testament was hidden, now it is revealed. It was always there, it just wasn't seen. The church is not, you know, God scrambling to figure out what do I do now that the Israelites rejected. It was always part of God's plan. He had just not revealed it in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. All right? But they're preaching the same thing. And when the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now, why would Christ leave? Right. That's the point. They were creating problems for John, right? They already we already know that. You know, they show up John say, Well, what's the authority that you have to baptize? What are you doing here? You know, who who gave you the right to do this? And John has to deal and by the way, when they showed up, how did John address them? <clears throat> Hey, here comes the snakes, everybody. Here comes the snakes. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Here comes the rotten trees. That's not very PC, right? But but John wasn't, you know, he sort of called it as it was. And Christ knew that, that because of their talking about the fact that he was gathering more people to him than John was, was going to precipitate... A conflict. Now, where was John doing his baptizing at this point? Judea. No. Jordan. Up, up, up near Galilee. Where was Jesus here at this point? Judea. 
he was down there with the Pharisees. I mean, he was in ground zero, basically. And so he knew he had to leave. And he, pardon? John was. And Anna near Salem is up near the Dead Sea, up near the Galilean Sea, Sea Galilee. It's up north. It's up by Galilee. All right. And so Christ had to leave to, you know, because he didn't want to precipitate a crisis before there was a need to. So he left. And it said when he left, he must needs do what? Go through Samaria. Now, that was not the normal route that was taken. But he was going to Galilee where John the Baptist was. So wouldn't he be going to controversy? No, because where were the Pharisees headquartered and located? Well, I thought you said they were still, they were starting to attack John. Well, they, they, they had sent a delegation up to John, right? They sent a delegation up there. But John, you know, he was, he was not near Jerusalem. He was not near the, the, the Jude, you know, the center of Judaism. He was up near the Sea of Galilee. So they could dismiss him a little bit. I mean, they knew he was up there doing stuff. But, um, you know, he, he was not really on their radar hit list yet. Where Christ was actually down where they were. Okay? And had Christ stayed there in Judea, he would have precipitated a conflict before. Every time he shows up in Judea, he's throwing the money changers out of the temple and creating a stir. You know, and, and he needed to get out of there. Yeah. I mean, does it, I'm just asking a question. Were the Pharisees trying to create a conflict? No. Between John and uh, Jesus? No, they were not. Because John and Jesus were preaching the same message. But the problem is, the Pharisees, the message that they preached was not in the Pharisees' favor for them to preach. All right? Because both Christ and John saw the Pharisees as who they really were hypocrites. You know? And, 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 and although John did not have nearly the kind of conflict with the Pharisees that Christ had, nevertheless, John was an irritation to the Pharisees. Because remember later on, Christ said, uh, tell me about John. Was his message from, from God or from man? And uh, the Pharisees reasoned, said, well, you know, if we say he's from man, the people will stone us because they think he's a prophet. If we say he's a prophet, then Christ is going to ask us why we didn't listen to him. So they say, well, we can't tell you that. I remember Christ said, well, then I can't tell you why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, the, the, the Pharisees didn't like John because he was not controlled by them. Would it be causing, I mean, when I'm reading this, I'm, I'm just kind of letting it impress me. It almost seems like Christ is leaving because of a disciple that he's been baptizing. No. It wasn't that? No. It was because the Pharisees were, it was, it was going to, if he had, he stayed in Judea, he would have precipitated a conflict before the time. Okay. Okay? Because the Pharisees started seeing him baptizing all these people, which meant, one more disciple for Jesus is one less disciple for okay, us. I understand. All right. And it would have caused problems before. So Christ left and went back up to Galilee. And, and the way he did that is instead of taking the normal route that most Israelites took, which is across the Jordan, all right, through Perea up to Galilee, yeah. he went through Samaria which was not the normal route for a Jew to take. Okay? And the reason, for, pardon? Uh, and the reason for this goes back to the intertestamental time. What, what happened in, in history is that when Assyria took over um, the northern ten tribes, 
they deported the Israelites out of the land and brought in um, foreigners. And over the course of time, those foreigners and some Jews who returned intermarried. And so they were not pure-blooded Jews, but they weren't pure-blooded foreigners. All right. And of course, the Jews who were down in Judea maintained their racial purity. So, you know, by the time of Christ, you have this class conflict. You have the pure-blooded Jews who are down in Judea, and then you have these half-breed Samaritans who are part Jewish, part Gentile, living in Samaria. And not only that, but because the Jews forbade the Samaritans to come down to Jerusalem to worship like they were required to once a year, the Samaritans came up with their own brand of Christianity, or not Christianity, of Judaism. And instead of worshiping down in Mount Zion, they worshiped up on Mount Gerizim. And where do they get Gerizim? Well, they got Gerizim from Joshua. Remember Joshua put the people on two mountains, and one mountain was blessed and one mountain was cursed. And Mount Gerizim was the blessed mountain, and he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. All right, and Mount Gerizim was chosen. And so that's why they camped on that. All right. And the Samaritans had what they call a Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And it was identical to the other, except instead of Mount Zion, it was Mount Gerizim. All right. Which will help us understand the question of the Samaritan woman in a little bit. But what it was is, is because of the animosity between these two groups, they did not um, communicate. In fact, if you were a Jew and you went through Samaria, you were unclean. You're ceremonially unclean. And when you crossed the border into, into Judea, you actually had to take the dust and beat it off your shoes because you don't want to defile Judean land with the dust from Samaria. They were just people from other nations. Um, all other kinds of nations. You know, the way Assyria did is they would swap land. They would try to disconnect you from your ancestral home. So all the Jews were deported to Bongo Bongo, and all the Bongo Bongos were supported, you know, brought back. I don't know what it is, but they were brought back to, yeah, various people groups, you know, to resettle it, you know. And the idea there was you wanted you wanted to shatter the ancestral um, connections to the land, all right, so that you could establish your own new kingdom, basically, is how they operated. All right. And so what happened over the years and, and you see this conflict, like even in Nehemiah, where you've got Sanballat and Tobiah and, you know, the Samaritans and things like that. You see this happening even during the, you know, after the Judean, um, Jude, the, the, um, after the captivity, the Judea, the tribe of Judea came back. You had these half breed intermarried Jews. And some of the Jews were the ones that were left or they were the riffraff that, you know, Babylon didn't carry off to Babylon. They were left there to till the lands and things like that. And over the course of time, they intermarried and became a, you know, a different ethnic group. And the Jews hated them and they despised them, you know, um, because they were half-breeds, because they, they had compromised, all right, their nationality. And the fact that Christ would go through Samaria was an interesting thing because Jews just didn't do that. You know, you, you went around it. You didn't go through it. Okay. Did they worship on the long, round, long mountain then? Yes. In the northern kingdom? No. So 
I'm getting confused. That's You're getting confused. Southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was Mount Zion. Yeah, that's, that's, that's Judea. That's the, Judea. the Samaritans, because they were not allowed to worship down in Jerusalem, they created their own brand of Judaism, which is very similar to Judaism, except they swapped Zion for Gerizim. All right. But that was that was Samaria was the northern. Samaria was the was the capital of the northern kingdom. All right, and that's where you get Samaritan. All right. Which is really interesting because remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Now go home and think about it. You know, what is Christ saying? Well, here's a guy beat up, laying on the side of the road dead, and what's the Levite do? Yeah, what's the priest do? And what's the Samaritan do? And you know, and that, I'll tell you that frosted them when they heard that. Because because the the scum of the earth, the scoundrel of all scoundrels, the the, the grossest of all human beings are is the one that showed compassion, and the the priest and the Levite who should have showed compassion showed him none. It was an indictment of hypocrisy. All right, and Christ picked the one person <laughs> that that every Jew despised from the bottom of their toes, just despised the Samaritans. Mm -hmm. But he had to go through there, and he said he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Sychar, go back in the Old Testament, you can read about this. All right. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the wells about the sixth hour, about noon. Okay. So he sat down. So they're making their way up, and it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles walk. I don't know exactly how long it is. It's quite a ways. And, uh, you know, it's noon, it's hot, you know, tired from the day. Let's sit down and rest a little bit. So he sits down by this well um, in, in there. And it says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, that, that just happened in those days. All right, that's how you, in fact, the woman was the one who basically went down to the well every day and drew out whatever water the family needed. They didn't have running water or anything like that. That's where they would go. One of the interesting things you learn this when you do traveling, is in Europe, they, a lot of the seas have these wonderful fountains, and you think how wonderful and cool they were. Well, they served a very important purpose, and that is where, that's where the people got their water. You know, back in the 1700s, you didn't turn on a tap and get water. You went down to the city fountain to get water. That's, that was your water source. Um, and in these days, it was a well, and she would go down to the well, and she would draw out the water. And women are the ones that usually did this. That was part of their daily task. You know, when they were cooking or whatever, they would go down and get water. Remember Rachel? You know, and, and not only did she draw water for Isaac, or for um, Eleazar, but also for his camels. Camels could drink a lot of water. You know. Um, so th that was how it worked in those days. And here's a woman who comes down. It's a normal time to go down and get some water. All right? Noon time is a normal time? Well, it was, it was just a time for, you know, she needed water, you know. It seems to be like the hottest part of the day. Yeah, well, you know, she was cooking or doing something and, you know, had to have some water, you know. So she goes down there to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And we look at that and we think, ah, nothing of it. That's, you know, what's big deal? Because where were the disciples at? They're off to buy some food, okay? So so he says, give me something to drink. And we, we look at that, we think nothing of it. But you got to understand, 
this was a this was a phenomenal social no-no in those days. You just didn't do that. Um, most men did not talk to women, much less a woman they didn't know, much less a Samaritan. You just didn't do that. You just didn't talk to them. Um, this was really a, you know, if, you, if they had the Ann Vanderbilt of the days, you know, she would have been rolling over, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the manners that Christ broke and even talking to this woman or even recognizing her being there. Um, and, and you can see that from the woman's response. You know, you understand, you know, it, it's tamed down here, but she was shocked they would actually talk to her. You just didn't do that. And Christ asked her, give me something to drink. Now, why did he ask her for that? He's thirsty. And what else? Yeah, and why else? Why did he ask her to give him something to drink? Why didn't he get something himself? He didn't have anything to draw with. <laughs> Got to be careful. Don't read too much spiritual. I mean, there was a divine appointment here. There's no doubt about it. But Christ didn't have anything to draw with, and he was thirsty. That's why he wanted something to drink. You probably would too if you were there. And um, the woman, in shock, said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? How does she know he was a Jew? The way he looked, his dress. We giving him away. And he was a stranger. I mean, she knew, all, she knew all the men in that city, evidently. She knew all of them. And uh, this wasn't one of them from the city. His dress was different. Um, she knew that he was a Jew. She says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why is it that you're asking this? Because Jews don't have anything to do with us. And that was a true statement. From a Pharisee's point of view, he would himself. Oh, yeah. The Pharisees, the average Pharisee would have coughed their skull up right there. Him actually talking to this woman. You just, they just didn't do that. Um, there's one, by the way, there's one group of Pharisees called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. There's all kinds of different ones. But the bruised and bleeding Pharisees actually thought it was sinful to look at a woman. So they walked around with their heads down. And they kept running into buildings and trees and everything else. And that's what they called the bruised and bleeding. I'm not making it up. Yeah. They, they thought it was a sin to look at a woman. So they would go down and run into things, you know. And the more bruises and knots they had in their head, I guess, the more godly they felt they were. Um, but, but this was just, you just didn't do that. I mean, this, Understand how, how socially unacceptable it was for Christ to, to even talk to her. And she's in, she just doesn't understand. She's in shock that he would do that. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. What's Christ doing here? He's setting her up. He's turning the subject to a spiritual matter. He's baiting the hook and turning the subject around. If you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask him for living water. Now, is this everything that Christ told her? Probably not. They probably said some more things. We don't know. This is this is a condensed Reader's Digest version of their conversation, but it has the important points here. And the woman said to him, Sir, 
you have nothing to draw with. Ah, so that's why he's asking her for something to drink. He doesn't have anything to draw with. He doesn't have a pitcher next to him or anything like that. So, how, you know, how's he going to get water from out of the well? And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? What is she thinking of? The living water. She's still on the physical. Yeah, when, she, when he says water, she thinks H2O. Well, they didn't know it was H2O, but water in the well. He's going to do something with the water in the well to make it alive or something. Yeah, that's, you know, she's, she's curious. She's trying to, you know, get the conversation going here. And he's drawing attention away from the shock of him actually talking to her to get her to actually question him. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from himself as well as his sons and his livestock? How does she call Jacob her father? She's a Samaritan. There is, that Jewish there is a Jewish component to her. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. And by the way, um, Joseph, what part of the nation was he in, north or south? What captivity did he go in? No. Oh. The Assyrians. Assyrian. Manasseh and Ephraim were the northern in the northern tribes. All right. And in fact, the northern ten tribes are often called Ephraim in Isaiah and Ezekiel. The first one was Ephraim because that was the largest tribe, just like the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin were called Judah because Judah was the largest tribe. You know, that's that's just the name they gave them. But she's asking him, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, are you greater than him? And her interest is peaked. She's asking, you know, what is this living water that he's talking about? What, what is it that he's, he's saying here? And then Jesus answered, and he's trying to get her now to, to, to go away from the physical to the spiritual. He's, he's still trying to get her to, to make that break here. And Jesus answered, said, and whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. This is physical water. You drink from this. Tomorrow you're thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of living of water springing up into everlasting life. Now he's trying to make the break into the spiritual. And we read that and we say, okay, we get it. We understand what's going on. But what is she still thinking? Physical water. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. She's still thinking, boy, it'd be great to get some water. I don't have to come down here and draw this water every day and never thirst again. I mean, in those days, you know, in those days, you didn't go down to the, you know, the local 7-Eleven and get a big gulp or something like that to drink. You know, there were wells that you had to go to to pull water out of, and it was a hot, you know, arid land to be in. You know, you didn't have cold drinks and pot machines and things like that. Yeah, thirst, thirst was a big deal. You lived your entire life you know, with a knowledge of thirst. And that's why, you know, you'd have to draw water several times a day, you know, to get water. You didn't just go to the tap and turn it on and get a glass of water. And she's still thinking in terms of the spirit, the, the, the physical aspect. Although Christ is bringing an illusion and trying to draw her into a spiritual component. And she's missing it so far. But don't be too hard on her because had you been there, guess what? You would have missed it as well. And Jesus said in here, well, go call your husband and come here. What's he doing here now? What's he, what's he trying to do? <coughs> hmm? 
He's revealing himself. But what? what? He's getting ready to uh, reveal her condition to her. To her. Right. And this is, you know, this is something. You know, there's big arguments in Christianity today about, you know, this whole concept of um, lordship, salvation, repentance, and all that kind of stuff. Well, let's just clear the air right now. You can't be a Christian if you don't repent. Amen. All right, just get that. Just, just, if you're not willing to look God in the eye and say, it's my fault, I'm a sinner, and I deserve what I get, you can't be saved. And God has to, at some point, bring you to a realization of your sin. Period. And I can't stand it when I got these people who say, well, you can be a Christian. You don't really have to repent. Where do you get that? You know, you know, or, or you have Charles or Robert Shuler say, you know, well, for Pete's sake, don't tell somebody they're a sinner. You can hurt their self-esteem, make them feel bad. Well, what did Christ do to this woman? He got right to the heart of the matter. Yes, he sure did. Verbally, all right. And, and and Christ, look, folks, God can forgive all your sin, but none of your excuses. Yeah. You know, and you need to you need to bring people in your gospel presentation, wherever it is, you need to bring, bring people to an understanding somewhere along the line that they have violated a relationship with a holy God. And they've got to look that God in the eye and admit and take responsibility for their actions. And that's what Christ, by the way, Christ does that. Remember when people run up to him and want to follow him in that? He brings them right to the heart of the matter. Brings them right to the heart of the matter. And this woman needed to come face to face with her sin because she's starting to show interest. She's starting to respond. And so Christ needs to say, okay, now we need to get her to realize her condition. She's, the light's sort of going on. She said, well, go call your husband. Now, why did he tell her to call her husband? In this case, it's the biggest area of sin, but culturally, why did he tell her to call her husband? He should be talking to her husband about this. Both of them, yeah. I mean, that's the cultural way to do it back then. Bring your husband. And what did she say? I don't have one. Christ said, yeah, you're right. You've had five of them. The one you're with now isn't your husband. Oh, you nailed, right? Now, how do you think Christ told her that? I don't think he was that blunt. I mean, I think he told it to her factually, uh, gently. Better than the average Baptist would have told yes. her, right? Yeah, that's the truth. I hate to say that, and I can say that because I am a Baptist. I, I grew up in a Baptist church. But you know what? I think I think Baptists put the Pharisees to shame sometimes with their judgmental attitude. I'm honest. I'm, I'll be honest with you. I think they did. I've seen, when I was growing up, I've seen people come to our Baptist church, and I think the Pharisees would have treated them better than we did. Because we thought that, you know, we, standing up for standards, you know, just, but, you know, Christ wasn't that way, was he? You know, we just read John 3.16, John 3.7, He came out in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here we see a practical application of Christ dealing with someone's sin without the spirit of condemnation. And I think it's important for all of us to see that because if we do our witnessing in the right spirit, 
We're going to have the ability to sit down calmly with someone we're trying to lead to Christ, share with them their condition, but it won't bring them to condemnation. I mean, it will bring them to conviction. There's right. a difference between condemnation. There's and a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Don't lower your standards. You're not compromising if you don't call down the fire of God on somebody. That's not compromise. It's not your job to condemn somebody. You know, don't gloss over the sin, but don't condemn them. And and the thing I think that most Christians don't understand, and I hate to say some of the fundamental Baptist people I I was with um, and, and was familiar with, is there's an attitude that, you know, that they're superior. They're superior. There's a reason Jack Hiles wore a gun. Because I would have probably shot the guy. <laughs> he was a bad example of Christianity. I don't know Jack Hiles. I think you probably, Chuck knows him. I think you heard of him. Chuck probably has. I don't yeah. But just a very condemnatory, caustic, judgmental person. That's not what Christianity is about. By the way, people who are sinners, what do you expect them to do? Yeah, we have, ah, what do you mean you're living with somebody that's not your, ah, ah. you know, what, what were they supposed to do? What do you expect? What would you do if you weren't a Christian? You know, don't, don't, don't gloss over sin. Don't. Don't pretend it's not there, but what do you expect a sinner to do? You expect them to sin. So don't be shocked when they sin. But, yeah, but gently bring them to the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit do the convicting part. You know, you don't need to convict people of sin. You really don't do a very good job of it. Let the Holy Spirit do the convicting work. Let, let, that's His business, by the way. What I need to do is bring the truth of the word of God to bear. And to do that in a gentle and gracious spirit. You realize that everybody Christ, Christ hung around with was more of a sinner than he was? You're supposed to laugh about that. Quite a bit more. Because he never sinned. And yet how did Christ treat people? He treated them with respect and, and dignity. And really the only ones he really got got up in arms with and and, and 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 really short with were the Pharisees who thought that they were okay. They didn't need anybody to help them out. Let's be careful not to be judgmental and critical. You know something that impresses me about Christ, and you know, from the Jewish perspective, he's defiling himself, being there talking to her, taking something from her hand. I, I thought of the story you told last week that you invited your Jewish friend over, but he is afraid that one of the utensils would touch something, that touched something, that touched something. That might cause him to defile himself. And yet you see Christ getting close enough to those individuals that from the Jewish perspective, he was defiling himself. But from our perspective, looking backward, he was taking the sin of the world upon him. Right. Christ touched the lepers. You know, Christ showed compassion on people. And I, and I wonder how much compassion do we show on sinners as Christians? It's very easy for us to get all upset and, you know, riled about the political structure and, you know, what's going on in politics and this and that and the other thing. And like, you know what? The world is not our enemy. It's our mission field. 
It's our mission field. You know, and when Christians are noted by who they hate, not by who they love, you got a problem. Christ was known by the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. He had little kids running around wanting to be around. And I'll tell you what, how many little kids want to be around the average Christian today that some censorious big shot? You know, that Christ had the little kids were flocking him. And the disciples actually tried to keep the kids away, and Christ got after them and said, Do not let the little children stay away from you. Don't, don't interfere. Let them come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. For I tell you, unless you become like a little child, you can't even get in it. He was not snooty. He treated this woman with respect. He, got, he, he pointed out her sin, but he did it in a way that she was convicted, but she didn't feel condemned. Let the Holy Spirit do the conviction. She said, you're right, you don't have a husband. You had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. And the woman said to Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. What is she doing here? Now, there's a couple of spins on what she's doing here. What do you think she's trying to do? She took a half step to recognize him as a prophet. She did that. She said, well, you, see, this guy wasn't around town. He didn't talk to anybody in town. And how did he know her for history? All right. So she knew that there was something different about this guy, that somehow he, he had a connection to God. All right. That's all the difference between the Jew and the Samaritan. Right. And she's still she's not quite trusting of him. And this question kind of presents that mistrust in the sense of, okay, now let's see how Jewish you are. That's one way to look at it. If he's a prophet and he's a Jew, she's thinking, well, if he's a Jewish prophet, he's for the Jewish people, not us. That's possible. Put yourself in her shoes. What, what, also maybe trying to change the subject entirely? It could be. You know, there's. I think there's an element to that. She's she's trying to deflect the the discussion away from her private life. Uh, she's actually pointing out the social injustice too between the Jew and the Samaritan. She is. Remember what we talked about with the Jewish and the Samaritan issue and how they worshipped in different places. Well, if you had a prophet of God show up and you were a Samaritan, what would be the number one question you'd want answered? Yeah, which, where do I go? I mean, I think that's a big component. She's actually saying, where do we worship? I think there's an element of trying to deflect maybe the attention away from, from her private life. But I do think this is a bona fide question she's asking him because this is, this is really the basis of the entire Samaritan religion. That we worship in Gerizim, not Jerusalem. And so she's saying, you Jews say we got to worship down there, but you won't let us. But we got to worship down there. We worship in this mountain here. Our fathers, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Gerizim. You Jews worship down in Jerusalem. Where do we go to worship? And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. What's he pointing her to? 
Right. And he's saying, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. You worship, but in ignorance. So he's telling her what? What about her, 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 her religion? What about her, their worship? What's he telling her about that? You're worshiping in the wrong spot. Salvation is of the Jews. Jerusalem is the place to worship. But he prefaces it by what? There's coming a time when you won't worship there or here. But salvation is of the Jews. They are right. Your fathers are wrong. But the hour is coming and now is. Even the hour is coming and even now is the hour when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is one of the great passages and we could literally spend the rest of our time tonight talking about these two verses. And if I do, we won't get to chapter 5. But basically what is Christ telling her here? Encapsulate and, and read the commentaries. That will help You know the, the books. Um, Christ is saying, you know, Jerusalem is the place to worship. That's where God ordained the temple worship. But there's coming a time when that's going to go away. Now, what is he looking forward to there? Well, we're the temple now. Yeah, we're the temple. And and here's if you you got to understand you got to understand the Old Testament. What was the Old Testament to the Jew? What was God's purpose in giving the Old Testament? What is it a what, what's what's its reason? What why did He give it? To prepare them for what? The Messiah, the reality. So if you want to understand the Old Testament, it is a picture book. What is the temple? It's a picture. Do you know that the temple, not of us, it's a picture of the heavenly temple. Go to Revelation. You've got a temple in heaven. There's, a, there's an altar in heaven, remember? And there's a what appears to be a bronze sea in heaven, right? And there's a throne in heaven, and there's a holy place in heaven. And in fact, in Hebrews, it says the tabernacle was modeled after what? The heaven, the temple. Hebrews 8. It's a picture. That's all it is. It's not reality. It's a picture. So what is the what so if it's not reality it's just a picture what is implied in the fact that it is a picture It's temporary. Now okay you you've just understood the theme of Hebrews. You can go home tonight and you can say I know what Hebrews is talking about. Cuz that's what it is. Hebrews is saying the old was great the new is better. The old is temporary the new is permanent. The old was based on a priesthood that changes. The new one is based on a priesthood that doesn't. The old one was based on tablets of law. The new one is on tablets of your heart. The old one was mediated by angels. The new one's mediated by the sun. And if things was bad when the mountain shook in the Old Testament, when the when the law was given, what's going to happen when the heavens and earth shake in the new? It's it's pointing to the new. It's it's a picture book, and that's that's where the Jews missed it. God never intended the Old Testament to be permanent. Not once. Hebrews makes a good point of that. How do you know? Well, in Hebrews saying, well, why, if, if the old covenant was good enough to forgive your sins, then why did every year you have to kill a goat? 
<coughs> Why? It was impermanent. Covered it for a year, but now next year you got to bring another one back. They have atonement. It never took it away. Whereas the new covenant, the sin is taken away. The old covenant, you have a sacrifice every year. The new covenant, it's a once for all. And Christ is pointing this woman to the time when you don't worship God in a location. Because God is a... And what does it mean God is a spirit? He's not confined to a space. There's no space. So why well, I thought God was in heaven. Well, he is. Is God, here's a question, is God more in heaven than he is here? No. No, he's equally everywhere at once. So what about the throne in heaven? I mean, you see him on the throne. No, you don't. You see the blinding Shekinah glory. The difference between heaven and here is you see the manifested glory of God there. You don't see it here. But that doesn't mean he isn't here. Omnipresent means God's everywhere equally at the same time in the same measure. You might not see it, but that doesn't mean it's not here. And he's saying God is a spirit. There's coming a point when you're not going to worship him in the location. You're going to worship him in your heart. And what kind of worship does God want? What are the two components of true worship? He says it right here. Spirit and truth. What's the truth point to? Truth is the idea that you don't worship God the way, way you think he should be worshipped. You worship the God the way he said he wants to be worshipped. We like to worship God on our own terms, don't we? doesn't work that way. If you worship God according to the truth, you're going to worship God the way God says he wants to be worshipped. And, and you're, going to, you're going to take the path of Abel, not the path of Cain. What was Cain's great sin? That he accidentally didn't bring the right thing? See, I was a kid, I grew up thinking, you know, poor old Cain, now he got a bum rap, you know? I mean, God said, hey, bring a sacrifice. So Cain said, well, what can I bring? What can I bring? Well, I know, I'll bring some fruit and vegetables and that. And God got mad at him. That's not what happened. Cain knew what God wanted. Cain knew what God wanted. But as far as Cain was concerned, the vegetables and fruit were... Good enough. Folks, you don't worship God on your terms. You worship God on his terms. And you want to think about that. If, if you violate a relationship with someone, how is that relationship reconciled on your terms or theirs? On their terms. We have violated our relationship with the Holy God. We don't just come up to God and say, well, you know, sorry, ha ha, forgive me, but uh, hey, let's go on. Shake. No, you come to God on his terms. And that's what Christ is pointing at too. You worship God the way God says he is to be worshipped. In the Old Testament, he prescribed how that was to look. And that's the way you worship. You can't make up new rules because you don't like the rules that he has. But that's only one component of worship. Because the Jews tended to worship God in the right, in, in the, in the right way, but where was their heart? That's what Isaiah said. Oh, you come to me and you honor me with your lips and your mouth and, and you bring the sacrifices, but your heart is far from me. You don't really want to be here. 
and I think I was telling Alan Sullivan before the class, if there's anything that's gotten through my thick skull in the past few years, is that God desires authenticity. God wants to know why you're doing this. Now, now, provided it's not something he specifically commanded, God's always asking, why are you doing this? Where's your heart at? Are you giving money to me because you love me and want to and want to give back out of a joyous heart? Or are you giving it because the pastor put a guilt trip on you that you got to give 10%? If you do that, keep your money. I don't want it. Go away. And there's, there's been a few times in the Old Testament when you read through the minor and major prophets where God is basically telling us, look, I'm sick of you guys. Just go away. Your heart's not right. Get away from me. I don't want to see you. Keep your sacrifices. If you don't come to me with the right attitude, get out. And I wonder today, you know, how many of us, you know, if God showed up, would he say, you know, why, why you, if he showed up the average Sunday morning service, how many people would say, why don't you all just go home? You don't want to be here. Just, just leave. Go away. And that's what he's bringing out to this woman. God wants you to worship him, but he wants to worship, worship him truthfully and with the right attitude. With your heart. And God's looking at the heart. Why do you do this? And I, 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 firm, I really believe this. I really believe this. God is much more interested in why you do something than what you do. Now, again, we're not talking about obvious commandments. We're not talking about that. But he's much more interested in why are you doing this than what are you doing. A very good example of this, you know, I love it, out of Zechariah chapter, I think it's 8 or 9, where in Zechariah 8, um, Zechariah has a delegation of two guys that come down and say, um, we were sent down here and they want to know, um, do we have to keep the feast of the fifth month and the, I think it's the second and fifth month or the fifth and seventh month. Do we need to keep keeping these fasts? I think it's the fifth and seventh month. One of them was when Jerusalem was um, was surrounded by the Babylonians and others when they fell. And they had this fast going during the um, during the captivity, and they would they would commemorate by a fast the day when Israel when the Jerusalem was surrounded and when it fell. And so these guys come back and say, um, you know, the people want to know, do we need to keep keeping this feast or this fast? And Zechariah basically says, well, let me go check. And he comes back later on. And he says, God wants to know why you're doing it. This is the Schaefer translation of the message. God wants to know why you're doing it. If you're doing it because you're actually sorry and, and, and sorrowful over your sin, keep doing it. If you're just doing it because you've been doing it for 70 years, go have dinner. And that's interesting because what it's pointing out, why are you doing what you're doing? Why? What's your motivation? And that's really what God is after. God wants your heart. Because if God's got your heart, all the other stuff will fall in the line. You realize that, right? If I love my wife as my own body, I don't need, I don't need instructions on how not to beat her, right? I don't need rules on how to treat her. I don't need rules on respecting her. If I love her, I don't need the rules because my love overrides the need for the commandment. And that's what Christ is trying to get. If you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the commandments take care of themselves. But we focus on the commandments because we like the little list. Because we like to make a list that we can keep and then we pat ourselves on the back and 
look in the mirror and say, boy, you're a godly man, aren't you? Because you keep the list. I grew up with it. I know what it's like. It's not, it's, your heart attitude is not the issue. It's just, do you keep the list? And Christ is saying here, worship the, God wants the true worshiper to worship him truth and with the right spirit. That's what he's seeking. And the woman says, I know that when Messiah is coming, who's called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She said, when we know, we, we know that when the Messiah, the, the Christ is coming. Now they were looking for the Messiah. When he comes, he'll tell us what we need to believe. And Christ says, I'm the Messiah. And what does she do? Well, at this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. They were shocked that he would actually do that. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They were too shamed to ask him, but they were marveled in their own hearts. You know, what in the world is he doing? You're not supposed to do that. And said, so the woman then left her water pot, went away into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things ever I did. Could this be the Christ? So they went out of the city and came to him. What caused her to, to see him as the Christ? What caused her to see him as the Messiah? Well, according to her, what was it? He told me everything I did. He, you know, he, he told me what I've been up to in my life. <laughs> you know, it, that that told her that this was—he was not just a normal person. Isn't this the Christ? Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? He's able to tell me what I've done in my life without knowing. And in the meantime, while she's in the city, of course, rounding up the city, the disciples urge him, saying, Rabbi or teacher, eat. Here's food. And he said to him, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And then, of course, the disciples, being the erudite and, and wise and insightful folk they are, understood exactly what he said. No, what are they doing? Did somebody pass him a somebody pass him a loaf of bread? Someone pass him something? Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Christ said, My my devotion to my message, to my mission, is more important than eating. That's what really is my food. Now, did Christ have to eat to live? Well, of course he did. But he's trying to get through to these dullards the importance of spiritual things. Now, did they catch on? Nope. Later on, when he goes across the sea, he says, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. And they look around saying, He's probably getting after us because we didn't bring any food. Christ says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. You guys missed it again. All right. Um, he's saying, my food, my sustenance is to do the will of the one who sent me. The Father. In fact, later on, he's going to, in chapter 6, he's going to really expand on this. And don't say that there are four months yet to, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you now, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. 
and he who receives wage, reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. The bottom line, what's Christ saying here? And this verse is pregnant with truth. It's pregnant with truth. You know, one of the things that we think of is, you know, when we think of witnessing, what do you think of when you think of witnessing? Evangelism, what do you think of? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, you're thinking of the, the sealing the deal, getting the conversion, signing the card, walking the aisle, whatever it is. What's Christ saying here about that? It's a process. You might pull a weed. Someone else might come along and put a little water on the plant. Another guy might come along and pull another weed. And someday somebody will come along and be there to reap. But they wouldn't reap if there wasn't people to sow the seed and pull the weeds. And it, 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 The point is, evangelism is not just sealing the deal. Evangelism is taking the truth of the gospel wherever it is, and you got to realize that a lot of times you're not going to be the one there to see the decision for Christ, but you might be the one that lays the foundation for that. And Christ is telling the disciples, our job, my job, is to work in the field. Look to the fields. They're white unto harvest. That means they're ready. you got to reap them now or the food will rot. And he's saying, don't be complacent about it. Don't, don't say, ah, oh, you know, we've got time yet. We've got plenty of time. Be at it. My will, my food, what drives me, Christ saying, is to do the will of the Father, the will of him who sent me. And I need to be busy doing that. It's not that he's saying, I'm not hungry, don't feed me, I don't need anything to eat. He's trying to bring a spiritual lesson to these guys. And, and what you also see here is a sense of urgency. Now, now we can be urgent but not spastic, right? You don't want to be spastic, but you want to be, there is a sense of urgency to being a Christian, of being a witness, a testimony, and opening your mouth and sharing the gospel. And But, you know, and this is interesting, you know, when, when it comes to, they've done a study on this, you probably got the internet and picked this up. But they did surveys and they found out, you know, generally how people come to Christ. You know what percentage of people come to Christ through a Billy Graham crusade or some massive evangelistic campaign? Two to three percent. Now that's what we think of when we think of evangelism, right? We put all kinds of money in this and all kinds of energy into evangelistic crusades. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying when you look at the number of people who actually come to Christ, very low percentage. You know how many people come to Christ through door-to-door -door evangelism? Not a lot. In fact, I think it might even be less than the crusade crowd. How do people come to Christ? One-on-one. -on -one, one, they come to Christ because a friend 
or a close relative witnesses them over a long period of time. They form a relationship. Now that's important. I'll, I'll tell you what, when I was growing up, you didn't teach Baptists that. They actually have a relationship with unbelievers. But how did Christ win people to himself? He became, he had a relationship with them. He, he did things with them. Have, you know, instead of having the Christian people over for dinner, find some pagan co-worker and have them over and become friends with them and let them see what Christ is like and share Christ with them and let them see what a Christian's all about. <clears throat> He'll corrupt me. Well, we gotta get, we gotta get over that real fast. It's, it's close personal evangelism, one on one. That, that's, that's the, and we're talking 80 to 90% of the people that come to Christ come to Christ because of a friend or a, a close family member who befriended them and brought them to Christ. Howard Hendricks put it well. He says, I need to be around hells and dams. He says, I need to be, I need to be around pagans. How am I going to be the salt of the earth if I sit in a salt shaker? And what impact for Christ am I going to have if I'm always around other Christians? Right? And he said the average, Christ, average person who comes to Christ within three years, they have no close, unsaved friends. Well, how do you influence people for Christ if you don't hang around with them? That doesn't mean you become like them. You go down to the bar and drink with them and that. That's not what it's talking about. But being acquainted with unbelievers. We're, you know, we've got this silly idea that we've been pumped at is that somehow it's, we've got to stay away from the bad people because they'll corrupt us. You've got to be around them. You gotta reach them. They gotta see what Christ is. They, they do. We think that we're just waiting for the sinners to show up at church and then we'll save them. Go out in the highways and byways. That's what Christ did. You know, he didn't sit around saying, you know, I'm gonna teach the, today and I'll wait for the people to come. Where'd he go? He went out. He, he, he walked among people. Now you gotta be careful. Don't let yourself become influenced by the world, but listen. Get out of this mindset that you got to somehow protect yourself from the pagans. And you can't hang, hang around with them for fear of being tainted. Christ went out with them. And Christ is telling the disciples, you need to get out there. In fact, Christ was known as the friend of sinners. Now, that's the Pharisees, right? The Listen, I'm telling you, the Pharisees were the first century Baptists. <laughs> Don't hang around the unbeliever. Did you know that that woman is a prostitute? You're not supposed to let her touch you. That guy's a drunkard. Yeah, I mean, he's a tax collector. I mean, you can't get any worse than that. And yet Christ was with them. He went he was went to them. In fact, he says, "You know what? You know, a doctor doesn't do any good healing healthy people. You go to the sick." And they get that scripture, "Come out and be separate." They get that one. Yeah, and they want they want separation, all right. Separation. You know, I don't want to hang around with people, hang around with people, hang around with people, hang around with people who are bad. Well then go find yourself an island down in the South Pacific and be by yourself. The problem is nobody will want to be around you because they might get tainted. I mean you can't do that. You gotta be around other people. And Christ is saying, get out there and touch and reach and, and talk to people and be friends. Form relationships with unbelievers. Let them see Christ in you. Let them see what Christianity is all about. We're going to have to, let's take our break here. Um, it's about time to swap a CD out, so let's take a break. We'll come back and finish this up after our break.
Thank you for listening to today's study in the Gospel of John. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.